Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and chat about. Then we ask them to read a poem of their own that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Tracy K. Smith, who is currently serving as United States Poet Laureate. She's received a Pulitzer Prize in Poetry, an Academy of American Poets Fellowship, an Essence Literary Award, a James Lachlan Award, and a Kaveh Kanem Poetry Prize. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you. The poem you chose to read today is Minimum Wage by Matthew Dickman. Tell us, uh, what about this poem caught your eye as you're sifting through the archives? Well, it's a poem that does something I really admire, which is it makes vigorous use of a metaphor that gets set up early in the poem. And as I see it, the poet follows where that metaphor leads. It kind of leads down its own path, which exerts a pull upon the material of the poem. Um, I think it's a really beautiful portrait of some of the quiet but persistent urgencies of American life. I agree. Let's hear it. Minimum wage. My mother and I are on the front porch, lighting each other's cigarettes as if we were on a 10-minute break from our jobs at being a mother and son. Just 10 minutes to steal a moment of freedom before clocking back in, before putting the aprons back on, the paper hats, washing our hands twice, and then standing behind the counter again, hoping for tips, hoping the customers will be nice, will say some kind word. The cool front yard before us, and the dogs in the backyard, shitting on everything. We are hunched over, two extras on the set of The Night of the Hunter. I am pulling a second cigarette out of the pack, a swimmer rising from a pool of other swimmers. Soon, we will go back inside and sit in the yellow kitchen and drink the rest of the coffee. And what is coming to kill us will pour milk into mine and sugar into hers. That poem appeared in longer form in the magazine, and it's since kind of been winnowed down the last mm-hmm. like handful of lines, um, which are, I think, exuberant lines that bring in mm-hmm. more like active metaphors. Um, those have been sacrificed, and I'm always so interested in the choices that poets make in revising their poems, I think everyone is. Um, it's, it's ceaselessly fascinating and instructive. And in the case of this poem, I think that um, deleting those lines, which were great, um, brings a tighter sense of focus and allows the, the bleak, I want to say color scale, but I guess it's kind of an <laughs> emotional scale right. um, of the poem to kind of get the last word. Well, I love that. That's a good way to put it. I, I think scale is right. And it, it's it's almost a miniature or something like that, the whole poem. It's really this moment, um, but that is, of course, about all of our moments and also about this larger moment in uh, the poet's life and, and this continuity with the mother, but also this world of work. Um, yeah. 
that we don't often hear about or don't hear enough about. Um, that was Minimum Wage by Matthew Dickman, which was published in the October 12th, 2015 issue of the magazine. I wonder if you would do us the favor of reading those last lines, uh, maybe starting with soon, we will go back all the way down. If you could read the original, I would love to hear it, and then we can talk about what it means to end at sugar into hers. Okay. Soon we will go back inside and sit in the yellow kitchen and drink the rest of the coffee, and what is coming to kill us will pour milk into mine and sugar into hers. Some kitchens are full of mothers and sons with no mouths, no eyes, and no hands. But our mouths are like the mouths of fire eaters, and our eyes are like the million eyes of flies. Our hands are like the hands of the living. Wow, yeah. I love those flies. Those are great. But I can see why, you know, to the poem's uh, purpose, that had to be sacrificed. And I think... People don't think about, you know, I think of publishing often as a process, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, the magazine is the first and hopefully final place, but sometimes things change. And I think either one, I can see why it leaped out and and appeared. It's one of the poems that I I saw and I was like, oh, I hope we could publish that one. And of course, we already had. So (laughs) that was a nice surprise. Yeah, it's funny. I think sometimes you have to live with a poem for a little while and, you know, it's first form, and then decide what it's doing. For me, sometimes what happens is the context of the book changes what I need that poem to enact or perform. And so sometimes you make other choices. This book um, that uh, Minimum Wage is is set in is um, called Wonderland. And it's forthcoming. It's a a book that's really thinking about kind of what to me feels like the violent silences of American life, um, and not necessarily because they've been suppressed, but because they've, they're have they unacknowledged. Like a lot of the poems are set during what I think of as the analog area, era, sorry, um, <laughs> well, before an area social and an media. Era. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, the sense of having a vocabulary to talk about middle-class unrest, having a vocabulary for talking about the kind of anxieties and even angers that have to do with difference, you mm-hmm. know, the fears of otherness, they come out in these poems in really horrible ways. And one of the major effects of the book, I think, is how, how stark that, that is and how unexplained um, those moments go. And I feel like this poem got scaled back perhaps that follows in step with those other poems that that leave a lot unarticulated. Well, and and the cutting also mirrors that uh, silence in a way. You know, poems are filled with silence. We often talk about what's there, but it sometimes feels like, you know, the stone that's cut away is just as important. And um, it's, you know, I think the poem is very sculptural. His other poems, I think, are too. And I've heard him read from this new book, Wonderland, that's forthcoming. And um, I do think it has that sense you're talking about. Um, and what a good title, Minimum Wage. I think that's, you know, yeah. it says so much about other wages, wages of sin, wages, uh, war, you know, all these things that come to mind in that simple phrase. Yeah, I agree. So we at The New Yorker had the honor of publishing on October 30th, 2017, 
your poem, Declaration, which you're going to read for us. Yeah. Uh, before you do, is there anything you'd like to say about it or that may be helpful? I have an idea, but I'd love to hear mm-hmm. what your thoughts. Yeah, it's a, a brief poem that I arrived at by kind of doing an erasure of the Declaration of Independence. And the reason I sat down to do that was um, there are a few poems in my forthcoming book that are thinking about slavery in America. There is a long sequence that is in the voices, the found voices of black veterans of the Civil War and their widows and children. And then there, there is a brief sequence that's another erasure based on correspondence between slaveholders. I was working on a poem about Monticello. Mm-hmm. And I didn't I couldn't I couldn't finish that poem. But one of the strategies that I kind of employed in an attempt to finish that poem was to say, oh, maybe there's something in the Declaration of Independence that could give me a, a, a sense of, of Jefferson, another voice, another tilt on that voice. And then I kind of got lost in that material and the rest of the poem has just kind of receded. Maybe it will find a life at some point. But when I was reading the the language in that founding document, I kept hearing something that spoke to blackness and mm. that spoke to all of the many awful occasions where we've seen black citizens killed by, you know, police misconduct. Um, and so when I got to the line sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people, something kind of pulled me into the present in a way that was terrifying and illuminating at the same time. When I get that feeling, I think a poem is nearby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's hear it, and then we'll talk more about it. Okay. Declaration. He has sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people. He has plundered our, ravaged our, destroyed the lives of our, taking away our, abolishing our most valuable, and altering fundamentally the forms of our. In every stage of these oppressions, We have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here, taken captive on the high seas to bear Wow. That was powerful. You didn't see it, but I was nodding my head the whole time. (laughs) I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. 
I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> It has a kind of, you know, obviously biblical quality almost. Um, did you were you aware of that when you were erasing it? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about what erasure means to you as a process and as a poetic kind of technique. Oh, sure. I'll start with that. I'm to me the the sense of um, going to a a document or a text that has lived in one context or one time and seeking to hear something new within it is, to me, seeking to hear what that document has to say about the present context and the current time. So going back to this founding document, I was hoping to hear something that could be useful, you know, at, right. this, at this moment in the 21st century. Um, and it seems to me you found it, but perhaps not in the way that you had expected or maybe even the document had expected. Yeah. I mean, what, what was interesting to me was what what was removed in my process, were the most specific um, elements that situate the poem in a where, a when, and a precise who. But the urge that the poem speaks to, I think, remains this idea of a group of people who have been, you know, stripped of some kind of autonomy or possibility by another, right? It's not the British Empire, but it's something. Mm -hmm. Um, I like that that he does have a kind of biblical ambiguity. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I think that maybe these kinds of documents are written to strike the tone of myth, you know, (laughs) Um, that's probably intentional. Um, But then inserting that additional silence allows that gesture to kind of reverberate in in different ways. But I'll tell you, I, I did hear something that made me remember the way I felt the first time that I ever heard the the Passover Haggadah, you know, the, the yeah. text that's read at the Seder that acknowledges or, or commemorates the Jews' um, p- flight out of Egypt. I remember um, thinking that that was another one of these texts that, that could feel so useful to my now and the group that I, you know, belong to. Right. It's an obligation in a way in the in the Jewish tradition to um, acknowledge this generation after generation, the idea that, you know, it wasn't just one um, attempt to destroy us, but there is in every generation some something that, that is attempting to rise up against us. Mm-hmm. And that feels so familiar to an African-American context. I mean, right. Lucille Clifton says that in, you know, one of her amazing poems, Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. And I thought, what would it feel like if... Black culture had its own ritual for commemorating this, you know, mm-hmm. deliverance from from enslavement. Right. Well, and I think the people that you mentioned, the hour that comes up in the poem, you know, it has this flexible quality that I think is so powerful. And I think back to sort of, you know, our public poetry in the U.S., which, you know, you are in that tradition being a poet lord, I would think. Um, I wonder how you approach sort of... A, 
is poetry public? Can it be public? What does it demand of us? And to me, that we, whether it's Whitman's eye that really is a we, or mm-hmm. it's you know um, Langston Hughes's eye that's a we, or the good old-fashioned we that I think someone like Elizabeth Alexander so beautifully did in her inaugural poem, you know, what about the people in the hour that you're mentioning, and how does that, you know, how do you think about that in your current role? Well, I think every poem is an invitation to forge a we with the speaker. So it's that sense of an I, an individual saying, come here, listen, this is what has happened, that I think is so profound. And when we submit to that as readers, we're being led to another perspective that ideally doesn't leave us. And and what that effect is to, you know, what the effect is, is that we're enlarged by that if we allow that to happen. When it's a we, I think that that feeling is perhaps more uh, conscious. But I, I, I believe that the that that intimate, private, first person, singular pronoun is the first step to empathy. And it's the first step to recognizing that the distance between me and you is small. Right. I mean, I think the poem is an act of empathy. I also think of it as a as a act of time travel, you know, like mm-hmm. across generations, suddenly you are Whitman, you know, yeah. um, you are, it's a, a mode of transport. And you put it so beautifully, every poem is an invitation to forge a we with the speaker. I think that's absolutely right. And I, I can't think of a better definition of the lyric. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about being poet laureate, how is it going? Well, um, so far it feels it feels really good. You know, it's only been about a month or so. But so I, you're I, old hat now. You're pro. <laughs> yeah. I feel so grateful to be called upon to talk about the the power of poems to bring us not just into conversation with each other because I I do believe that's urgent and important, but also into a more active and mindful conversation with ourselves, right? Poems are, they enact a vocabulary of feeling that often helps to fill in these very powerful silences in our lives, the things that we feel, but that we are hard-pressed often to bring into speech. Um, We live in a world and a time where there's so much that's in our vocabulary um, that's pulled us even farther from a set of terms that could help us talk about nuanced feeling, memory, loss. I'm talking about language that makes us believe that we are, uh, I want to say commodities, but maybe consumers, that our prime value is as you know, consumers who can like something can share something, um, can buy something, can be served by um, a product that can satisfy needs that we hadn't even been aware that we possessed. Um, it's exciting in a lot of ways, right, to live in a modern era. But sometimes I feel like it's pulling us farther and farther from the human terms that connect us to our larger and perhaps eternal selves. And I think poems do that. They do it with language, but they also do it with the music. And they do it with the 
vast and surprising thought pattern that poems enact. You know, poems are, are sometimes more like dreams than they are like uh, essays or letters. And we follow that and we get somewhere that feels familiar in the way that dream landscapes feel familiar and, and at the same time utterly strange and, and temporary. That's wonderful. I think that's so true and well put. Uh, I want to end by asking you about your forthcoming book, Wade in the Water, which, of course, has this Negro spiritual reference. And maybe you can tell us about how Declaration fits into it and then also how you see this book um, in the world. Well, the I think guiding preoccupation in this new book is compassion, the conundrum of compassion. You know, it's this beautiful concept, and it's so hard to enact. And I'm looking at history as evidence of that difficulty. You know, all of the opportunities for loving one another that um, have not been met by behavior or by policy. But I'm also looking at you know, the now, my now, my private experience, the quotidian world where there are strangers that represent um, something. And often it's not so much an opportunity for compassion or love, but vexation. Um, um, guess I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to teach myself another approach. Mm-hmm. The title poem is really one example, not not only of that beautiful and large power of the spiritual wade in the water, but, um, you know, there's an anecdote that goes with that poem, and it's that one of the performers at a ring shout performance that I attended um, greeted every single person with the words, I love you, and a hug, and it didn't feel like an act it didn't feel, you know, diminished by the fact that the person behind me got the same treatment and the person behind him got the same treatment. It felt like this um, kind of mammoth gesture of repair. And, um, you know, when you look at history, repair is something that you are hungry for. Right. I think that tradition, it sounds like you've really connected to, and I know you writing a lot about belief and also about history and, and, and your own uh, mammoth gestures of repair. So thank you for those. Thank you, Kevin. Declaration and the poem just mentioned, Wade in the Water, by Tracy K. Smith, as well as Matthew Dickman's poem, Minimum Wage, can be found on newyorker.com. Matthew Dickman's latest book of poems is Wonderland, forthcoming in March 2018. Tracy K. Smith's most recent collection is Wade in the Water, forthcoming in April 2018. Tracy, so good to talk to you always, and thanks for being my first guest on the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's great to hear your voice. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pentagree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Haas.
from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com with help from Hannah Eisenman. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.